chapter 26. Very interesting passage. And we're going to cover verses 1 through 16. Matthew 26 and verses 1 through 16. And I know Baylor is doing well, but I think First Baptist Academy is doing well too. Isn't it? We won our seventh game uh, Friday night. We got three more to go. There you go. Good we're, uh, we're planning to go to state this year. That's great. Well, great. Okay, Matthew 26. Uh, now we come to what is basically the last or the final section of Matthew's Gospel. And it deals with uh, the events leading up to and including the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is the last major section of the gospel. Today we're going to look at the preliminaries uh, to the death of Christ. Okay, so here's going to be my outline. If you want to just follow along, we'll divide it this way. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus announces his upcoming death. Okay, that's verses 1 and 2. Jesus announces his upcoming death. Verses 3 through 5, the participants plot his, un, his upcoming death. That's 3 through 5, the plotting. Verses 6 through 13, a woman anoints Jesus for his upcoming death. And then verses 14 through 16, Jesus conspires on Jesus' upcoming death. Okay, so we have, he announces it, the participants plot it, a woman anoints him, and then Judas conspires. Okay, to turn Jesus over to die. So let's look at Jesus' announcement of his death, verse 1, this is Matthew 26, 1. It says, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, what sayings? The Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25, about his second coming. After Jesus had finished saying that, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. Now, the key sentence here is the last part of verse 2, which simply says this, The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Everything else modifies that sentence. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Delivered up means he's going to be arrested. Okay? Crucified means he's going to be executed. It's the Jews who will arrest him. It will be the Romans who carry out the execution. Jews were under the authority of Rome. Rome had conquered the entire world, including the land that we today call Palestine. And the Jews were under the authority of the Romans. They were subject to the Romans. They could not carry out an execution on their own. They could arrest somebody and turn them over to Rome, and if Rome felt that, that the arrest was warranted and it was a capital crime, they would carry it out. Now, the timing of these events is very interesting. Look what Jesus says in verse 2. After two days is the Passover. So it's going to happen after the next two days. The Passover, we know, is Friday. Okay. According to the Jewish calendar, that starts on Thursday evening at 6 o'clock. It goes from Thursday evening to, six, to sun, uh, Friday sundown. Which means Jesus makes this announcement either on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. So we can place this event the Tuesday or Wednesday of, Pas of Passion Week. Okay. And so it's going to be after the 
Passover begins, or when the Passover begins, which is a festival that draws about 200,000 people to Jerusalem from about an 80 to 100 mile radius. If you were a Jew and you lived within 80 miles of Jerusalem, you had to attend the Passover. And so there's going to be a large group of people. And of course the Passover was a memorial to the Exodus. It, rem it reminded the Jews that God delivered them from Egypt. And they saw it also from a future perspective that one day God would deliver them from Rome. So every time they came together, they, said they remembered the Exodus back then, and then they were hoping that God would deliver them from under the power of Rome as well. So this is Jesus' announcement. Now we see the participants in the plot. Okay? Look in verse 3. We're going to see three groups here who plot to kill Jesus. It says, first of all, there were the chief priests. Uh, these are the temple authorities. This is from a priestly family who run the political affairs and the religious affairs of the city of Jerusalem. Okay? The chief priest. There were hundreds of priests who had come and worked in the temple for two weeks at a time. Okay? They were offering sacrifices day in and day out. But and you would just come in rotations. Maybe you'd have two weeks on, and then you'd have six months off, and you'd do another two weeks. And there were thousands of people who were involved in that process. But the chief priests were full-timers. Okay? And they were very powerful people. That's the first group. The second group in verse 3. The scribes. Some translations don't have the word scribes in there, but mine does. The scribes. These are the interpreters of the law. Some of your translations say lawyers. Not, when the Bible talks about lawyers, it never talks about lawyers like today. That means these are the interpreters of the law of Moses. In that sense, they're law, lawyers, you know. And whenever the priest had questions or needed a ruling about the law of Moses, they would come to the scribes. And they would say, well, what does it mean that we have to keep the Sabbath? Does that mean if our donkey falls into a ditch, we can't pull it out and the scribes would then give a ruling. So those were the scribes. These were the interpreters of the law. Okay? And then there's a third group there. The elders of the people. These are very influential and wealthy laymen. Okay? Uh, all three groups make up the elitist in society. These were the people today we would call the wealthy, uh, influential people in society. The power brokers, if you will. Okay? So now we see the conspiracy. It says they assembled together. Now watch, where did they assemble? At the palace, literally meaning not, he wasn't a king, so he didn't have a palace the way you think of it. It means the home of the high priest. This was the head honcho who was called Caiaphas. Uh, his home was like a palace <laughs> because he was very wealthy. Caiaphas, the high priest, Although he was the ruler of the Jewish people, he ran the temple. He was appointed by Caesar to that position. Jews did not choose their own high priest during this era. The high priest was a political appointment by Caesar. That means he served the Roman government. He was responsible to make sure all the taxes were collected that was owed Rome. 
And the Jewish people would come and bring their taxes and tribute to the temple. And then it was distributed to Rome. So he was a, a coolie for Rome. And he reigned from 18 to 36 B.C. 18 years is a long time to be a high priest. Most high priests lasted only three years. So this is a man who is politically connected and he works on the behalf of Rome. So there was no such thing as like separation of church and state. You know, he wasn't just a religious leader, he was a political leader as well. So they come together and look what they do in verse 4. They plotted to take Jesus by trickery, by deception. They were going to use some sort of ploy to arrest him and to kill him. But, but, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when you read verse 5, it looks like they want to postpone the arrest until after the Passover. But it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, we know that it doesn't mean... How do we know that it doesn't mean they're going to postpone it after the Passover? Because Jesus says in two days he's going to be arrested and he's going to be put to death, right? What they mean by this statement in verse 5, not during the feast, they mean not while the festivities are going on during the daytime hours and there are people out there in the streets doing all these kinds of things. What they're going to do is they're going to wait till the people retire to their inns to their holiday ends like at night and they're going to sleep. So they're planning on arresting Jesus during this time, but not when the people are out in the streets. They're going to do it under the cover of darkness. Okay? So that is the participants plot to arrest and kill Jesus. Okay? Now we have a woman anoints Jesus for his upcoming death and burial. Look at that. Verse 6. Notice the location. When Jesus was in Bethany, which was a few miles outside of Jerusalem, at the house of Simon the leper. <clears throat> now notice this. This anointing is going to take place at the house or the home of Simon the leper. The plot took place at the home of the high priest. Okay. The anointing is going to take place at the home of Simon the leper. The high priest, the most important person in the temple and a leper who can never step foot inside the temple. Something negative is going on in the home of the high priest. And something positive is going on in the home of Simon the leper. Now I believe that he had been healed of leprosy by this time. Probably by Jesus. Uh, but this is going to be the location of the anointing. Now look at verse 7. Look at the circumstances surrounding this. A woman came to him, meaning Jesus, having an alabaster flask a very costly, fragrant oil. According to Mark's Gospel, this was worth a year's salary. One bottle, a year's salary. Now, depending on how much you make, whether you're a $30,000 a year person, that would be everything that you make in a year. You're a $50,000 or $100,000 or a $500,000 person. And this was a woman who was very wealthy. And so this is a bottle of perfume that has tremendous value. And according to the commentaries, these bottles of perfume, which were owned by rich people, were sometimes passed down from generation to generation. They were like heirlooms. You just didn't open it. You just use it for anything. 
It would only be opened on the absolutely rarest occasion. It's like a bottle of fine wine. I decided to try to figure out, well, what would that be like? And I thought, well, maybe a bottle of fine wine. So I got on the internet and I looked it up. And I discovered last year there was a bottle of wine sold for $144,000. Bought by the House of Rothschild in London, England. It's a French bottle of wine. And I thought, well, who would ever open that and drink it? He would never drink that, would he? He's not just that, hey, street, come on over, let's have a glass of wine. I, mean, well, I wouldn't have drank the wine, but, you know, maybe George Smith, he would. <laughs> he probably said, George, you want a glass of wine? George said, well, let me take a look at your wine. I think I want that one, 140. No. You don't open that bottle of wine. It's probably going to sit in his wine cellar for years, except on the most rarest occasion, you know. Maybe if the guy who owns it would be made ambassador to France or something. They might bust it open and have a great party. So the fact that this woman has this bottle of rich perfume, expensive perfume, says something about her and about the circumstances surrounding the event. It says, look what she does with it in the end of verse 7. She poured it on his head and as he sat at the table. Now, Matthew does not tell us who that woman is. But John's Gospel tells us, tells us that it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And this is the Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus as his disciple while Martha, the sister, slaved in the kitchen. And Jesus said, Mary's doing a good thing by sitting here at my feet. She takes this costly perfume and she anoints his head with it. And another gospel says that she anoints his feet with it as he sat at the table. Now, sitting at the table in our English Bible seems like he's sitting normally at a table, but that wasn't the case at all. He was on a couch. This was a formal, former, formal meal and he was reclining on his left elbow. And so all she had to do was come up behind him, pour it over his head, and his feet would have been here. And she would have poured it over his feet. She would never had to bend down. It's not like she's bending down and doing this. So she anoints Jesus with this fragrance, this perfume, okay, as he's reclining at the table. And his disciples would probably be reclining there along with him. And probably Lazarus was probably reclining there along with him. And then we see the reaction of the disciples to this. It says in verse 8, uh, but the disciples, look at this, but the disciples, when the disciples saw that, what she was doing, they were indignant. Why this waste? They say, that's a why question. If you're a lawyer, by the way, you're taught in law school never to ask a why question to a person who's on the stand unless you know the answer. Because you might not get the answer you want. And so they ask the why question. Why the waste? And uh, they give the rationale for the question. They say in verse 9, for the, this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. In other words, Jesus, you could buy a lot of Happy Meals for a lot of hungry kids if you just sold this bottle of perfume. 
What are we doing and wasting it on, just pouring it on you? This doesn't even make sense. They're poor out there. And uh, maybe they were uh, remembering Jesus' words just back in the previous chapter that we should take care of the least of these, our brother, and they chirp up and say, hey, we should have just sold that. That could be used for the poor. Uh, we know from John's Gospel that it's actually Judas Iscariot who raises the question. You think Judas was concerned about the poor? <laughs> and then all the other disciples, they sort of just chirp in. You know, and they start saying, yeah, why the waste? Why the waste? So we get Jesus' response in verse 10. But when Jesus was aware of it, because they were talking amongst themselves, but he knows what's going on. He said to them, and notice what he does. He answers with a question. He said to them, why do you trouble the woman? Uh, which tells us that they weren't just asking this question among themselves. They were saying, what are you wasting this Bottle of perfume costs one hundred forty-four thousand dollars. Look at you know what you can do with one hundred forty-four thousand dollars. And this woman, who's come there out of a good motive, a pure heart, this is upsetting her. And Jesus says, "Why are you upsetting this woman?" Uh, just think of the last time you were criticized when you did something that was good and you were misunderstood, and somebody. You know, just started criticizing you. Remember how you felt? That wasn't fun, was it? And so they are just, you know, speaking against this woman, and this is their reasoning. This is worth a lot of money. We could have given it to the poor, which is true. They could have done that. Okay. So he says, so why are you troubling the woman, verse 10? And he gives an explanation. He says, for she has done a good work. Me. What she's done is not bad, it's not a negative, it's a positive. She's done something good in this act. Reason number one. And number two, verse 11. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. So, she's doing something. Uh, and when Jesus says this, he says, the poor you'll have with you always, and that is a true statement. So what Mary is doing, Mary is doing something that is extravagant, no doubt about that. It's extravagant, but it's good because it is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do this. If she misses this opportunity, she'll never have the opportunity again. She'll be dead in a couple days. So what she's doing is extravagant, but good, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But guess what? Every day we have an opportunity to take care of the poor, don't we? If I did something extravagant today, I would still be able to do something for the poor tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. That doesn't preclude you not being able to do anything for the poor. Anything you do for the poor will be good. And so then he gives us the meaning of this act. He said it's, he looks at it as a symbolic act. In verse 12 he says, For in the pouring of this fragrant oil on my head... She did it for my burial. So Jesus sees significance in that event. Because when he dies, remember, they have to take his body down really quick. Remember and get him in the tomb? They don't have time to prepare the body. And so Jesus sees this act as her preparing his body with anointing uh, beforehand, a week before, a couple days beforehand. Because it's not going to happen when he is taken down 
from the cross. They're going to have to put him in the tomb immediately. And then he says this. <clears throat> Look at the future impact. This is very interesting. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, the gospel of the kingdom is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Has the gospel been preached in America? And guess what we're doing today? We're reading about this woman. 2,000 years later, we're reading about what this woman has done, and she's being memorialized even as we're sitting here. 6,800 miles from Palestine, here in the United States of America, in Dallas, United States of America, right here in the President's class, we're doing just what Jesus said. We, will, we are memorializing her. Now, isn't it interesting? At a feast, she's being memorialized. At the Lord's Supper, remember what Jesus said? Whenever you eat this Lord's Supper, you'll do it in remembrance of me. It's a memorial meal. The Lord's Supper is a, remor a, remor a memorial meal. I'll say it right. Okay. And by this supper, guess what this is? This is a memorial to Mary. It's very interesting, isn't it? Why is it a memorial to Mary? Because she does something that is extravagant. And Mary sets the standard, the standard for extravagance. Okay. And I think this is where the rubber really meets the road, if you want to know the truth. Because most people who take the name of Christ, now listen to me when I say this, most people who take the name of Christ don't do one witch for the poor. And guess what? Neither do they ever do anything extravagant for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an either-or thing. Most people who take the name Christ don't do either thing. And what we need to do is, first of all, we need to regularly take care of the poor. That's number one. That's what we should do on a regular basis. Take care of the poor. I want to show you one verse. Okay? Some of you probably have never seen it. But I want you to look over at Deuteronomy chapter 15. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 15. Now what I want you to remember is this is Old Testament. Okay? And when you get there, Beginning at verse 7 through 11, there are the rules of how to handle poor people. And in my Bible, it says generosity toward the poor. And I'm not going to read all, all the verses, but I just want you to look down at verse 11. This is the bottom line. See if this doesn't sound a little bit like what Jesus said. For the poor, this is Deuteronomy 15, 11, for the poor will never cease from the land. That's, you always have the poor among you. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother and to your poor and your needy and your land. There's the rule. That's the Old Testament. And guess what? When you go to the New Testament, it hasn't changed. If they were to do this in the Old Testament times, how much more should we do this in the New Testament times? The least of these are my brethren. So, this is the rule. This is what we're to do on a regular basis. Regularly, we should take care of the poor. Now, on the rare occasions, 
That's what we do on the regular occasions, take care of the poor. But on those rare occasions, maybe once in a lifetime, that's how rare I'm talking about, we should do something significant for Jesus. Something that's absolutely extravagant for Jesus. Something on the level of what this woman has done for Jesus. Now, for those who have a lot of money, extravagance is big, looks bigger and brighter and glitzier, maybe. And those who have a little, it may be less money, but it's just as extravagant. And once in a lifetime, we should do something that is extravagant for Jesus. Extravagance is the exception rather than the rule. The rule is take care of the poor. The exception is do something extravagant. At least once in your life. We have organizations that do that. I was, you know, I was just thinking this. I was working on this message of a secular organization. Make-A-Wish Foundation. You have some little kid. Maybe he's got cancer. He's got six months to live. What's your biggest wish? Go to Disney World. Meet so-and-so. Go to this and meet this great star. Go out to Hollywood. Guess what? They throw all caution to the wind. They just do whatever it takes to meet that wish. They do something extravagant. That's what we're called to do. At least once, each one of us should do something extravagant for the Lord before it's too late. Before you regret it, that you haven't done it. You say, well, how do I know when I should do that? Oh, the Holy Spirit will prompt you. You'll know. This question is whether you'll do it or whether you won't do it. So, we see this anointing, and this is an extravagance. Okay? Now we see Judas prepares for Jesus' death. He conspires. Look at verse 14. Okay? Now we're at this next section. Then one of the twelve called Judas went out to the chief priest. Notice he takes the initiative. Takes the initiative. And he said, What will you give me if I deliver him to you. What will you give me? So he's cutting a deal. He's making a bargain. What will you give me if I deliver him, meaning over to you to be arrested? See, Judas realizes that his idea of the kingdom is not going to happen. He thinks Messiah is going to come in, overthrow Rome, set up the kingdom of God. Judas will have one of the seats, one of the thrones ruling the world. And it's just not going to happen that way. And so he realizes that, and he seizes the moment. He takes an opportunity to make a few bucks out of it. In his mind, he says, look, I've wasted three years of my life on this guy, and it's not all going to be lost. I'm going to get something out of it. So he takes the initiative, he goes to the high priest, and he basically sells Jesus out. So he says, what were you giving me? And look at the end of verse 15. They counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. He gets the payment in advance. It's always nice to get the payment in advance, isn't it? I've written some books. I've written three books. On one book, I got nothing in advance. Another book, I got $500 in advance. Another book, I got $3,500 in advance. Which one do you think I like writing the best? <laughs> okay, no, now, that's in advance. Guess what? If the book doesn't sell, then what do I have to do? 
give it back. That's sort of like a draw against commission type thing. It's, it's really your own money. It's, it doesn't quite fit into this, but I thought I'd throw that. So anyway, uh, it's a payment in advance, and they give you 30 pieces of silver, and we think that those were shekels. And uh, so when you add up 30 pieces of silver for uh, 30 shekels, it actually comes out to four months' wages. Okay? So uh, Esau had a birthright, and he traded for immediate satisfaction. Judah is in the same category, and he trades eternal life, which is going to come through Jesus Christ, for immediate satisfaction. And verse 16 says, So from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So here we see a contrast, don't we? You see a contrast between the woman and Judas. Notice her love. Love of Messiah. Notice his motive, the love of money. <laughs> both have a motive, and both motives are love. But what is the love for the wrong thing? Love for Messiah, love of money. Okay. Look at this. The woman does something that's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Right before Jesus dies, she does something extravagant. Guess what Judas does? Once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Crazy. Sells him out. No turning back then. The woman, she takes something one year's worth of wages. She gives it to Jesus. He takes four months worth of wages in order to sell Jesus down the river. Okay. She's a giver. He's a getter. Boy, it's like night and day, isn't it? She will be a memorialized. He'll be anathematized forever. We'll remember both of them. But one will remember positively, the other will remember negatively. And for Matthew, he chooses to tell these four little vignettes. Write it down for his readers and for us. And I think he chooses these events and lays them out like this because this is a call for his readers, including us, to take action and at the same time it's a warning. You see, you can either love God with all your heart and do something extravagant, and your neighbor is yourself, and be selfless. You can do something regularly for the poor, and those rare occasions, something extravagant. That's one way you can live, or we can love ourselves and watch out for number one. That's what Judas does. But at the end, is it worth it? At the end, after all is said and done, Judas regrets what he has done and goes out and hangs himself. And the woman, after Jesus' death, is so glad for what she's done. And then he's raised from the dead and she goes to the tomb. And the first words he mentions after his resurrection is, Mary. One has regrets, one has no regrets. One is remembered to this day for the right reason. And the question I guess we have is, how do each one of us want to be remembered? Because even though we don't sell Jesus down the river, if we're living for number one, and we have no concern for Jesus, and we have no concern for the poor, our life is basically, when it comes to the end, is going to be a life of regrets. 
So let us follow the example of Mary. And let us minister to the poor in our midst. In our midst. That's why I think it's important to minister in the president's class. You know, and the ministries we have in the president's class. I'm not talking about the poor over on the other side of the world. <laughs> you don't know if it's a con game or what. But minister to the people who have needs in your midst. And then let us, once in our lifetime, as the Spirit moves us, do something absolutely extravagant for Jesus. We'll never regret it. Amen? Lord, we thank you for a passage like this that speaks to us. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit. Help us to know when there's a legitimate need and we can read and meet it. Help us to know when we can do something grand for Jesus. It'll make a difference. Lord, some of us are going to go through life and we're not going to ever meet a need for a poor person. We'll never do anything extravagant. Everything we have that we haven't spent on ourselves will just be left behind for someone else to do by it. Help us, Lord, to make decisions while we're alive. Make decisions that can make a difference now. In Christ's name, amen.